john burroughs memories of his boyhood part one by john burroughs from harper's magazine january nineteen twenty two this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org my boyhood part one by john burroughs editor's note eight years before his death mr burroughs was urged by his son julian to set down some chapters descriptive of his early life it is this autobiographical record of mr burroughs boyhood and youth which harper's magazine is now privileged to give to its readers in this and subsequent issues my dear julian you ask me to give you some account of my life how it was with me and now in my seventy-sixth year i find myself in the mood to do so you know enough about me to know that it will not be an exciting narrative or of any great historical value it is mainly the life of a country man and a rather obscure man of letters lived in eventful times indeed but largely lived apart from the men and events that have given character to the last three-quarters of a century like tens of thousands of others i have been a spectator of rather than a participator in the activities of the times in which i have lived my life like your own has been along the bypaths rather than along the great public highways i have known but few great men and have played no part in any great public events not even in the civil war which i lived through and in which my duty plainly called me to take part i am a man who recoils from noise and strife even from fair competition and who likes to see his days linked each to each by some quiet congenial occupation the first seventeen years of my life were spent on the farm where i was born eighteen thirty seven eighteen fifty four the next ten years i was a teacher in rural district schools eighteen fifty four eighteen sixty four then i was for ten years a government clerk in washington eighteen sixty four eighteen seventy three then in the summer of eighteen seventy three while a national bank examiner and bank receiver i purchased the small fruit farm on the hudson where you were brought up and where i have since lived cultivating the land for marketable fruit and the fields and woods for nature literature as you well know i have gotten out of my footpaths a few times and traversed some of the great highways of travel have been twice to europe going only as far as paris eighteen seventy one and eighteen eighty two the first time sent to london by the government with three other men to convey fifty million dollars worth of bonds to be refunded the second time going with my family on my own account i was a member of the harriman expedition to alaska in the summer of eighteen ninety nine going as far as plover bay on the extreme northeast part of siberia i was the companion of president roosevelt on a trip to yellowstone park in the spring of nineteen o three 
in the winter and spring of 1909 i went to california with two women friends and extended the journey to the hawaiian islands returning home in june in 1911 i again crossed the continent to california i have camped and tramped in maine and in canada and have spent part of a winter in bermuda and in jamaica this is an outline of my travels i have known but few great men i met carlyle in the company of moncure conway in london in november 1871 i met emerson three times in 1863 at west point in 1871 in baltimore and washington where i heard him lecture and at the holmes birthday breakfast in boston in 1879 i knew walt whitman intimately from 1863 until his death in 1892 i have met lowell and whittier but not longfellow or bryant i have seen lincoln grant sherman early sumner garfield cleveland and other notable men of those days i heard tyndall deliver his course of lectures on light in washington in eighteen seventy or seventy one but missed seeing huxley during his visit here i dined with the rossettis in london in eighteen seventy one but was not impressed by them nor they by me i met matthew arnold in new york and heard his lecture on emerson my books are in a way a record of my life that part of it that came to flower and fruit in my mind you could reconstruct my days pretty well from those volumes a writer who gleans his literary harvest in the fields and woods reaps mainly where he has sown himself he is a husbandman whose crop springs from the seed of his own heart my life has been a fortunate one i was born under a lucky star it seems as if both wind and tide had favored me i have suffered no great losses or defeats or illness or accidents and have undergone no great struggles or privations i have had no grouch i have not wanted the earth i am pessimistic by night but by day i am a confirmed optimist and it is the days that have stamped my life i have found this planet a good corner of the universe to live in and i am not in a hurry to exchange it for any other with this forward i will begin the record in more detail i have spoken of my good luck it began in my being born on a farm of parents in the prime of their days and in humble circumstances i deem it good luck too that my birth fell in april a month in which so many other things find it good to begin life father probably tapped the sugar bush about this time or a little earlier the bluebird and the robin and song sparrow may have arrived that very day new calves were bleating in the barn and young lambs under the shed there were earth-stained snowdrifts on the hillside and along the stone walls and through the forests that covered the mountains the coat of snow showed unbroken the fields were generally bare and the frost 
was leaving the ground the stress of winter was over and the warmth of spring began to be felt in the air i had come into a household of five children two girls and three boys the oldest ten years and the youngest two one had died in infancy making me the seventh child mother was twenty-nine and father thirty-five a medium-sized freckled red-haired man showing very plainly the celt or welsh strain in his blood as did mother who was a kelly and of irish extraction on the paternal side i had come into a family of neither wealth nor poverty as those things were looked upon in those days but a family dedicated to hard work winter and summer in paying for and improving a large farm in a country of wide open valleys and long broad-backed hills and gentle flowing mountain lines very old geologically but only one generation from the stump in the history of the settlement indeed the stumps lingered in many of the fields late into my boyhood and one of my tasks in the dry mid-spring weather was to burn these stumps an occupation i always enjoyed because the adventure of it made play of the work the climate was severe in winter the mercury often dropping to thirty degrees below though we then had no thermometer to measure it and the summers at an altitude of two thousand feet cool and salubrious the soil was fairly good though encumbered with the laminated rock and stones of the catskill formation which the old ice sheet had broken and shouldered and transported about about every five or six acres had loose stones and rock enough to put a rock-bottomed wall around it and still leave enough in and on the soil to worry the plowman and the mower all the farms in that section reposing in the valleys and bending up and over the broad-backed hills are checkerboards of stone walls and the right angled fields in their many colors of green and brown and yellow and red give a striking map-like appearance to the landscape good crops of grain such as rye oats buckwheat and yellow corn are grown but grass is the most natural product it is a grazing country and the dairy cow thrives there and her products are the chief source of the incomes of the farms i had come into a home where all the elements were sweet the water and the air as good as there are in the world and where the conditions of life were of a temper to discipline both mind and body the settlers of my part of the catskills were largely from connecticut and long island coming in after or near the close of the revolution and with a good mixture of scotch emigrants my great-grandfather ephraim burroughs came with his family of eight or ten children from near danbury connecticut and settled in the town of stamford shortly after the revolution he died there in eighteen eighteen my grandfather eden came into the town of roxbury then a part of ulster county i had come into a land flowing with milk if not with honey the maple syrup may very well take the place of the honey the sugar maple was the dominant tree in the woods 
and the maple sugar the principal sweetening used in the family maple beech and birch wood kept us warm in winter and pine and hemlock timber made from trees that grew in the deeper valleys formed the roofs and the walls of the houses the breath of kine early mingled with my own breath from my earliest memory the cow was the chief factor on the farm and her products the main source of the family income around her revolved the haying and the harvesting it was for her that we toiled from early july until late august gathering the hay into the barns or into the stacks mowing and raking it by hand that was the day of the scythe and the good mower of the cradle and the good cradler of the pitchfork and the good pitcher with the modern agricultural machinery the same crops are gathered now with less than half the outlay of human energy but the type of farmer seems to have deteriorated in about the same proportion the third generation of farmers in my native town are much like the third steeping of tea or the third crop of corn where no fertilizers have been used the large picturesque and original characters who improved the farms and paid for them are about all gone and their descendants have deserted the farms or are distinctly of an inferior type the farms keep more stock and yield better crops owing to the amount of imported grain consumed upon them but the families have dwindled or gone out entirely and the social and the neighborhood spirit is not the same no more huskings or quiltings or apple cuts or raisings or bees of any sort the telephone and the rural free delivery have come and the automobile and the daily newspaper the roads are better communication quicker and the houses and barns more showy but the men and the women and especially the children are not there the towns and the cities are now coloring and dominating the country which they have depleted of its men and the rural districts are becoming a faded replica of town life the farm work to which i was early called upon to lend a hand as i have said revolved around the dairy cow her paths were in the fields and woods her sonorous voice was upon the hills her fragrant breath was upon every breeze she was the center of our industries to keep her in good condition well pastured in summer and well housed and fed in winter and the whole dairy up to its highest point of efficiency to this end the farmer directed his efforts it was an exacting occupation in summer the day began with the milking and ended with the milking and in winter it began with the foddering and ended with the foddering and the major part of the work between and during both seasons had for its object directly or indirectly the well-being of the herd getting the cows and turning away the cows in summer was usually the work of the younger boys the turning them out of the stable and putting them back in the winter was usually the work of the older the foddering them from the stack in the field in winter also fell to the lot of the older members of the family in milking we all took a hand when we had reached the age of about ten years 
mother and my sisters usually doing their share at first we milked the cows in the road in front of the house setting the pails of milk on the stonework later we milked them in a yard in the orchard behind the house and of late years the milking is done in the stable mother said that when they first came upon the farm as she sat milking a cow in the road one evening she saw a large black animal come out of the woods out where the clover meadow now is and cross the road and disappear in the woods on the other side bears sometimes carried off the farmer's hogs in those days boldly invading the pens to do so my father kept about thirty cows of the durham breed now the dairy herds are made up of jersey or holsteins then the product that went to market was butter now it is milk then the butter was made on the farm by the farmer's wife or the hired girl now it is made in the creameries by men my mother made most of the butter for nearly forty years packing thousands of tubs and firkins of it in that time the milk was set in tin pans on a rack in the milk house for the cream to rise and as soon as the milk clabbered it was skimmed about three o'clock in the afternoon during the warm weather mother would begin skimming the milk carrying it pan by pan in the big cream pan where with a quick movement of a case knife the cream was separated from the sides of the pan the pan tilted on the edge of the cream pan and the heavy mantle of cream in folds or flakes slid off into the receptacle and the thick milk emptied into pails to be carried to the swill barrel for the hogs i used to help mother at times by handing her the pans of milk from the rack and emptying the pails then came the washing of the pans at the trough at which i also often aided her by standing the pans up to dry and sun on the big bench rows of drying tin pans were always a noticeable feature about farmhouses in those days also the churning machine attached to the milk house and the sound of the wheel propelled by the old churner either a big dog or a weather sheep every summer morning by eight o'clock the old sheep or the old dog was brought and tied to his task upon the big wheel sheep were usually more unwilling churners than dogs they rarely acquired any sense of duty or obedience as a dog did this endless walking and getting nowhere very soon called forth vigorous protests the churner would pull back brace himself choke and stop the machine one churner threw himself off and was choked to death before he was discovered i remember when the old hatchel from the day of flax dressing fastened to a board did duty behind the old churner spurring him up with its score or more of sharp teeth when he settled back to stop the machine run and start the old sheep was a command we heard less often after that he could not long hold out against the pressure of the phalanx of sharp points upon his broad rear end the churn dog was less obdurate and perverse but he would sometimes hide away as the hour of churning approached 
and we would have to hustle around to find him but we had one dog that seemed to take pleasure in the task and would go quickly to the wheel when told to and finish his task without being tied in the absence of both dog and sheep i have a few times taken their place on the wheel in winter and early spring there was less cream to churn and we did it by hand two of us lifting the dasher together heavy work for even big boys and when the stuff was reluctant and the butter would not come sometimes until the end of an hour the task tried our mettle sometimes it would not gather well after it had come then some deft handling of the dasher was necessary i never tired of seeing mother lift the great masses of golden butter from the churn with her ladle and pile them up in the big butter bowl with the drops of buttermilk standing upon them as if they were sweating from the ordeal they had been put through then the working and the washing of it to free it from the milk and the final packing into tub or firkin its fresh odor in the air what a picture it was how much of the virtue of the farm went each year into those firkins literally the cream of the land ah the alchemy of life that in the bee can transform one product of those wild rough fields into honey and in the cow can transform another product into milk the spring butter was packed into fifty-pound tubs to be shipped to market as fast as made the packing into one hundred pound firkins to be held over till november did not begin till the cows were turned out to pasture in may to have made forty tubs by that time and sold them for eighteen or twenty cents a pound was considered very satisfactory then to make forty or fifty firkins during the summer and fall and to get as good a price for it made the farmer's heart glad when father first came on the farm in eighteen twenty seven butter brought only twelve and fourteen cents per pound but the price steadily crept up till in my time it sold from seventeen to eighteen and a half the firkin butter was usually sold to a local butter buyer named dowie he usually appeared in early fall always on horseback having notified father in advance at the breakfast table father would say dowie is coming to try the butter today i hope he will not try that firkin i packed that hot week in july mother would say but very likely that was the one among others he would ask for his long half-round steel butter probe or trier was thrust down the center of the firkin to the bottom given a turn or two and withdrawn its tapering cavity filled with a sample of every inch of butter in the firkin dowie would pass it rapidly to and fro under his nose maybe sometimes tasting it then push the trier back into the hole then withdrawing it leaving its core of butter where it found it if the butter suited him and it rarely failed to do so he would make his offer and ride away to the next dairy the butter always had to be delivered at a date agreed upon on the hudson river at catskill this usually took place in november it was the event of the fall two loads of butter of twenty or more firkins each 
to be transported fifty miles in a lumber wagon each round trip taking about four days the firkins had to be headed up and gotten ready this job in my time usually fell to hiram he would begin the day before father was to start and have a load headed and placed in the wagon on time with straw between the firkins so they would not rub how many times i have heard those loads start off over the frozen ground in the morning before it was light sometimes a neighbor's wagon would go slowly jolting by just after or just before father had started but on the same errand father usually took a bag of oats for his horses and a box of food for himself so as to avoid all needless expenses the first night would usually find him in steele's tavern in green county halfway to catskill the next afternoon would find him at his journey's end and by night unloaded at the steamboat wharf his groceries and other purchases made and ready for an early start homeward in the morning on the fourth night we were on the lookout for his return mother would be sitting sewing by the light of her tallow dip with one ear bent toward the road she usually caught the sound of his wagon first there comes your father she would say and hiram or wilson would quickly get and light the old tin lantern and stand ready on the stonework to receive him and help him put out the team by the time he was in the house his supper would be going on the table a cold pork stew i remember used to delight him on such occasions and a cup of green tea after supper his pipe and the story of his trip told with a list of family purchases and then to bed in a few days the second trip would be made as his boys grew old enough he gave each of them in turn a trip with him to catskill it was a great event in the life of each of us when it came my turn i was probably eleven or twelve years old and the coming event loomed big on my horizon i was actually to see my first steamboat the hudson river and maybe the steam cars for several days in advance i hunted the woods for game to stock the provision box so as to keep down the expense i killed my first partridge and probably a wild pigeon or two and gray squirrels perched high on that springboard beside my father my feet hardly touching the tops of the firkins at the rate of about two miles per hour over rough roads in chilly november weather i made my first considerable journey into the world i crossed the catskill mountains and got that surprising panoramic view of the land beyond from the top at cairo where it seems we passed the second night i disgraced myself in the morning when father after praising me to some bystanders told me to get up in the wagon and drive the load out in the road in my earnest effort to do so i ran foul of one side of the big door and came near smashing things father was humiliated and i was dreadfully mortified with the wonders of catskill i was duly impressed but one of my most vivid remembrances is a passage at arms verbal at the steamboat 
between father and old dowie the latter had questioned the correctness of the weight of the empty firkins which was to be deducted as tear from the total weight hot words followed father said strip it strip it dowie said i will and in a moment there stood on the scales the naked firkin of butter sweating drops of salt water which one i do not know i only remember that peace soon reigned and dowie continued to buy our butter one other incident of that trip still sticks in my mind i was walking along a street just at dusk when i saw a drove of cattle coming the drover seeing me called out here boy turn those cows up that street this was in my line i was at home with cows and i turned the drove up in fine style as the man came along he said well done and placed six big copper cents in my hand never was my palm more unexpectedly and more agreeably tickled the feel of it is with me yet at an earlier date than that of the accident in the old stone schoolhouse my head and body too got some severe bruises one summer day when i could not have been more than three years old my sister jane and i were playing in the big attic chamber and amusing ourselves by lying across the vinegar keg and pushing it about the room with our feet we came to the top of the steep stairway that ended against the chamber door a foot or more above the kitchen floor and i suppose we thought it would be fun to take the stairway on the keg at the brink of that stairway my memory becomes a blank and when i find myself again i am lying on the bed in the back bedroom and the smell of camphor is rank in the room how it fared with jane i do not recall the injury was probably not serious with either of us but it is easy to imagine how poor mother must have been startled when she heard that racket on the stairs and the chamber door suddenly burst open spilling two of her children mixed up with the vinegar keg out on the kitchen floor jane was more than two years my senior and should have known better vivid incidents make a lasting impression i recall what might have been a very serious accident had not my usual good luck attended me when i was a few years older one autumn day i was with my older brothers in the corn lot where they had gone with the lumber wagon to gather pumpkins when they had got their load and were ready to start i planted myself on the load above the hind axle and let my legs hang down between the spokes of the big wheel luckily one of my brothers saw my perilous position just as the team was about to move and rescued me in time doubtless my legs would have been broken and maybe very badly crushed in a moment more but such good fortune seems to have followed me always one winter's morning as i stooped to put on one of my boots beside the kitchen stove at the house of a schoolmate with whom i had passed the night my face came in close contact with the spout of the boiling steam kettle the scalding steam barely missed my eye and blistered my brow a finger's breadth above it with one eye gone i fancy life would have looked quite different 
another time i was walking along one of the market streets of new york when a heavy bale of hay through the carelessness of some workman dropped from thirty or forty feet above me and struck the pavement at my feet i heard angry words over the mishap spoken by someone above me but i only said to myself lucky again i recall a bit of luck of a different kind when i was a treasury clerk in washington i had started for the seashore for a week's vacation with a small roll of new greenbacks in my pocket shortly after the train had left the station i left my seat and walked through two or three of the forward cars looking for a friend who had agreed to join me not finding him i retraced my steps and as i was passing along the car next my own i chanced to see a roll of new bills on the floor near the end of a seat instinctively feeling for my own roll of bills and finding it missing i picked up the money and saw at a glance that it was mine the nearby passengers eyed me in surprise and i suspect began to feel in their own pockets but i did not stop to explain and went to my seat startled but happy i had missed my friend but i might have missed something of more value to me just at that time a kind of untoward fate seems inherent in the characters of some persons and makes them the victims of all the ill luck on the road such a fate has not been mine i have met all the good luck on the road some kindly influence has sent my best friends my way or sent me their way the best thing about me is that i have found a perennial interest in the common universal things which all may have on equal terms and hence have found plenty to occupy and absorb me wherever i have been if the earth and the sky are enough for one why should one sigh for other spheres the old farm must have had at least ten miles of stone walls upon it many of them built new by father from stones picked up in the fields and many of them relayed by him or rather by his boys and hired men father was not skillful at any sort of craft work he was a good ploughman a good mower and cradler excellent with a team of oxen drawing rocks and good at most general farm work but not an adept at constructing anything hiram was the mechanical genius of the family he was a good wall layer and skillful with edged tools it fell to his lot to make the sleds the stone boats the hay rigging the axe helves the flails to mend the cradles and rakes to build the haystacks and once i remember he rebuilt the churning machine he was slow but he hewed exactly to the line before and during my time on the farm father used to count on building forty or fifty rods of stone wall each year usually in the spring and early summer these were the only lines of poetry and prose father wrote they are still very legible on the face of the landscape and cannot be easily erased from it gathered out of the confusion of nature 
built up of fragments of the old devonian rock and shale laid with due regard to the wear and tear of time well bottomed and well capped establishing boundaries and defining possessions etc these lines of stone wall afford a good lesson in many things besides wall building they are good literature and good philosophy they smack of the soil they have local color they are a bit of chaos brought into order when you deal with nature only the square deal is worth while how she searches for the vulnerable points in your structure the weak places in your foundation the defective material in your building the farmer's stone wall when well built stands about as long as he does it begins to reel and look decrepit when he begins to do so but it can be relayed and he cannot one day i paused by the roadside to speak with an old man who was rebuilding a wall i laid this wall fifty years ago he said when it is laid up again i shall not have the job he had stood up longer than had his wall a stone wall is the friend of all the wild creatures it is a safe line of communication with all parts of the landscape what do the chipmunks red squirrels and weasels do in a country without stone fences the woodchucks and the coons and foxes also use them it was my duty as a farm boy to help pick up the stone and pry up the rocks i could put the bait under the lever even if my weight on top of it did not count for much the slow patient hulky oxen how they would kink their tails hump their backs and throw their weight into the bows when they felt a heavy rock behind them and father lifted up his voice and laid on the gad it was a good subject for a picture which i think no artist has ever painted how many rocks we turned out of their beds where they had slept since the great ice sheet tucked them up there maybe a hundred thousand years ago how wounded and torn the meadow or pasture looked bleeding as it were in a score of places when the job was finished but the further surgery of the plough and harrow followed by the healing touch of the seasons soon made all whole again the work of the farm in those days varied little from year to year in winter the care of the cattle the cutting of the wood and the threshing of the oats and rye filled the time from the age of ten or twelve till we were grown up we went to school only in winter doing the chores morning and evening and engaging in general work every other saturday which was a holiday often my older brothers would have to leave school by three o'clock to get home to put up the cows in my father's absence those school days how they come back to me the long walk across lots through the snow choked fields and woods our narrow path so often obliterated by a fresh fall of snow the cutting winds the bitter cold the snow squeaking beneath our frozen cowhide boots our trousers legs often tied down with toe-strings to keep the snow from pushing them up above our boot tops the wide open white landscape 
with its faint black lines of stone wall when we had passed the woods and began to dip down into west settlement valley the smith boys and boaten boys and dart boys afar off threading the fields on their way to school their forms etched on the white hillsides one of the bigger boys rea boaten who had many chores to do morning after morning running the whole distance so as not to be late the red schoolhouse in the distance by the roadside with the dark spot in its center made by the open door of the entryway the creek in the valley often choked with anchor ice which our path crossed and into which i one morning slumped reaching the schoolhouse with my clothes freezing upon me and the water gurgling in my boots the boys and girls there jay gould among them two-thirds of them now dead and the living scattered from the hudson to the pacific the teachers now all dead the studies the games the wrestlings the baseball all these things and more pass before me as i recall those long gone days two years ago i hunted up one of those schoolmates in california whom i had not seen for over sixty years she was my senior by seven or eight years and i had a boy's remembrance of her fresh sweet face her kindly eyes and gentle manners i was greeted by a woman of eighty-two with dimmed sight and dulled hearing but instantly i recognized some vestiges of the charm and sweetness of my elder schoolmate of so long ago no cloud was on her mind or memory and for an hour we again lived among the old people and scenes what a roomful of pupils many of them young men and women there were during those winters thirty-five or forty each day in late years there are never more than five or six the fountains of population are drying up more rapidly than are our streams of that generous roomful of young people many became farmers a few became businessmen three or four became professional men and only one so far as i know took to letters and he judged by his environment and antecedents the last one you would have picked out for such a career you might have seen in j gould's jewish look bright scholarship and pride of manners some promise of an unusual career but in the boy of his own age whom he was so fond of wrestling with and of having go home with him at night but whose visits he would never return what was there indicative of the future surely not much that i can now discover j gould who became a sort of napoleon of finance early showed a talent for big business and power to deal with men he had many characteristic traits which came out even in his walk one day in new york after more than twenty years since i had known him as a boy i was walking up fifth avenue when i saw a man on the other side of the street more than a block away coming toward me whose gait arrested my attention like something i had known long before who can it be i thought and began to ransack my memory for a clue i had seen that gait before 
as the man came opposite me i saw he was jay gould that walk in some subtle way differed from the walk of any other man i had known it is a curious psychological fact that the two men outside my own family of whom i have oftenest dreamed in my sleep are emerson and jay gould one to whom i owe so much the other to whom i owe nothing one whose name i revere the other whose name i associate as does the world with the dark way of speculative finance the new expounders of the philosophy of dreams would probably tell me that i had a secret admiration for jay gould if i have it slumbers deep in my subconscious self and awakens only when my conscious self sleeps but i set out to talk of the work on the farm the threshing was mostly done in winter with a hickory flail one shock of fifteen sheaves making a flooring on the dry cold days the grain shelled easily after a flooring had been threshed over at least three times the straw was bound up again in sheaves the floor completely raked over and the grain banked up against the side of the bay when the pile became so large it was in the way it was cleaned up that is run through the fanning mill one of us shoveling in the grain another turning the mill and a third measuring the grain and putting it into bags or into the bins of the granary one winter when i was a small boy jonathan scudder threshed for us in the barn on the hill he was in love with my sister ollie ann and wanted to make a good impression on the old folks every night at supper father would say to him well jonathan how many shock today and they grew more and more until one day he reached the limit of fourteen and he was highly complimented on his day's work it made an impression on father but it did not soften the heart of ollie ann the sound of the flail and the fanning mill is heard in the farmer's barns no more the power threshing machine that travels from farm to farm now does the job in a single day a few hours of pandemonium with now and then a hand or arm crushed in place of the days of leisurely swinging of the hickory flail the first considerable work in spring was sugar making always a happy time for me usually the last half of march when rills from the melting snow began to come through the fields the veins of the sugar maples began to thrill with the spring warmth there was a general awakening about the farm at this time the cackling of the hens the bleating of young lambs and calves and the wistful lowing of the cows earlier in the month the sap spiles had been overhauled resharpened and new ones made usually from basswood in my time the sap gouge was used instead of the auger and the manner of tapping was crude and wasteful a slanting gash three or four inches long and a half inch or more deep was cut and an inch below the lower end of this the gouge was driven in to make the place for the spile a piece of wood two inches wide shaped to the gouge and a foot or more in length it gave the tree a double 
an unnecessary wound the bigger the gash the more the sap seemed to be the theory as if the tree was a barrel filled with liquid whereas a small wound made by a half-inch bit does the work just as well and is far less injurious to the tree when there came a bright morning wind northwest and warm enough to begin to thaw by eight o'clock the sugar-making utensils pans kettles spiles hogsheads were loaded upon the sled and taken to the woods and by ten o'clock the trees began to feel the cruel axe and gouge once more it usually fell to my part to carry the pans and spiles for one of the tappers hiram or father and to arrange the pans on a level foundation of sticks or stones in position father often used to haggle the tree a good deal in tapping by fagus he would say how awkward i am the rapid tinkle of those first drops of sap in the tin pan how well i remember it probably the note of the first song sparrow or first bluebird or the spring call of the nuthatch sounded in unison usually only patches of snow lingered here and there in the woods and the earth-stained remnants of old drifts on the sides of the hills and along the stone walls those lucid warm march days in the naked maple woods under the blue sky with the first drops of sap ringing in the pans had a charm that does not fade from my mind after the trees were all tapped two hundred and fifty of them the big kettles were again set up in the old stone arch and the hogsheads in which to store the sap placed in position by four o'clock many of the pans milk pans from the dairy would be full and the gathering with neck yoke and pails began when i was fourteen or fifteen i took a hand in this part of the work it used to tax my strength to carry the two twelve-quart pails full through the rough places and up the steep banks in the woods and then lift them up and alternately empty them into the hogsheads without displacing the neck yoke but i could do it now all this work is done by the aid of a team and a pipe fastened on a sled before i was old enough to gather sap it fell to me to go to the barns and put in hay for the cows and help stable them the next morning the boiling of the sap would begin with hiram in charge the big deep iron kettles were slow evaporators compared with the broad shallow sheet iron pans now in use profundity cannot keep up with shallowness in sugar making the more superficial your evaporator within limits the more rapid your progress it took the farmers nearly a hundred years to find this out or at least to act upon it at the end of a couple of days of hard boiling hiram would syrup off having reduced two hundred pails of sap to five or six of syrup the syruping off often occurred after dark when the liquid dropped from a dipper which was dipped into it and held up in the cool air formed into stiff thin masses it had reached the stage of syrup 
how we minded our steps over the rough path in the semi-darkness of the old tin lantern in carrying those precious pails of syrup to the house where the final process of sugaring off was to be completed by mother and jane the sap runs came at intervals of several days two or three days would usually end one run a change in the weather to below freezing would stop the flow and a change to much warmer would check it the fountains of sap are let loose by frosty sunshine frost in the ground or on it in the shape of snow and the air full of sunshine are the most favorable conditions a certain chill and crispness something crystalline in the air are necessary a touch of enervating warmth from the south or a frigidity from the north and the trees feel it through their thick bark coats very quickly between the temperatures of thirty-five to fifty they get in their best work after we had had one run ending in rain and warmth a fresh fall of snow sap snow the farmers call such will give us another run three or four good runs make a long and successful season my boyhood days in the spring sugar bush were my most enjoyable on the farm how i came to know each one of those two hundred and fifty trees what a distinct sense of individuality seemed to adhere to most of them as much as to each cow in a dairy i knew at which trees i would be pretty sure to find a full pan and at which ones a less amount one huge tree always gave a cream pan full a double measure while the others were filling an ordinary pan this was known as the old cream pan tree its place has long been vacant about half the others are still standing but with the decrepitude of age appearing in their tops a new generation of maples has taken the place of the vanished veterans while tending the kettles there beside the old arch in the bright warm march or april days with my brother or while he had gone to dinner looking down the long valley and off over the curving backs of the distant mountain ranges what dreams i used to have what vague longings and i may say what happy anticipations i am sure i gathered more than sap and sugar in those youthful days amid the maples when i visit the old home now i have to walk up to the sugar bush and stand around the old boiling place trying to transport myself back into the magic atmosphere of that boyhood time the man has his dreams too but to his eyes the world is not steeped in romance as it is to the eyes of youth one springtime in the sugar season my cousin gib kelly a boy of my own age visited me staying two or three days he died last fall when he went away i was minding the kettles in the woods and as i saw him crossing the bare fields in the march sunshine his steps bent toward the distant mountains i still remember what a sense of loss came over me his comradeship had so brightened my enjoyment of the beautiful days he seemed to take my whole world with him and on that and the following day 
i went about my duties in the sap bush in a wistful and pensive mood i had never before felt i early showed the capacity for comradeship a boyfriend could throw the witchery of romance over everything oh the enchanted days with my youthful mates and i have not entirely outgrown that early susceptibility there are persons in the world whose comradeship can still transmute the baser metal of commonplace scenes and experiences into the purest gold of romance for me it is probably my idiosyncrasies that explain all this another unforgettable passion of comradeship in my youth i experienced toward the son of a cousin a boy four or five years old or about half my own age one spring his mother and he were visiting at our house eight or ten days the child was very winsome and we soon became inseparable companions he was like a visitation from another sphere i frequently carried him on my back and my boy's heart opened to him more and more each day one day we started to come down a rather steep pair of stairs from the hog pen chamber i had stepped down a few steps and reached out to take little harry in my arms as he stood on the floor at the head of the stairs and carry him down when in his joy he gave a spring and toppled me over with him in my arms and we brought up at the bottom with our heads against some solid timbers it was a severe shake-up but hurt my heart more than it did my head because the boy was badly bruised the event comes back to me as if it was but yesterday for weeks after his departure i longed for him day and night and the experience still shines like a star in my boyhood life i never saw him again until two years ago when knowing he lived there a practicing physician i hunted him up in san francisco california i found him a sedate gray-haired man with no hint of course of the child i had known and loved more than sixty years before it has been my experience on several occasions to hunt up friends of my youth after the elapse of more than half a century last spring i had a letter from a pupil of mine in the first school i ever taught eighteen fifty four or fifty five i had not seen or heard from him in all those years when he recalled himself to my mind the name i had not forgotten roswell beach but the face i had only two weeks ago being near his town it occurred to me to look him up i did so and was shocked to find him on his deathbed too weak to raise his head from his pillow he yet threw his arms around me and spoke my name many times with marked affection he died a few days later i was to him what some of my old teachers were to me stars that never set below my horizon my boyish liking for girls was quite different from my liking for boys there was little or no sense of comradeship in it when i was eight or nine years old there was one girl in the school towards whom i felt very partial and i thought she reciprocated till one day i suddenly saw how little she cared for me 
the teacher had forbidden us to put our feet upon the seats in front of us in a spirit of rebellion i suppose when the teacher was not looking i put my brown soil-stained bare feet upon the forbidden seat polly quickly spoke up and said teacher johnny burris put his feet on the seat what a blow it was to me for her to tell on me like a cruel frost those words nipped the tender buds of my affection and they never sprouted again years after her younger brother married my younger sister and maybe that unkind cut of our school days kept me from marrying polly i had other puppy loves but they all died a natural death but let me get back to the farm work the gathering of the things in the sugar bush when the flow of sap had stopped usually fell to eden and me we would carry the pans and spiles together in big piles where the oxen and sled could reach them then when they were taken to the house it was mother's and sister's task to get them ready for the milk the drawing out of the manure and the spring ploughing were the next things in order on the farm i took a hand in the former but not in the latter the spreading of the manure that had been drawn out and placed in heaps in the fields during the winter often fell to me i remember that i did not bend my back to the work very willingly especially when the cattle had been bedded with long rye straw but there were compensations i could lean on my fork handle and gaze at the spring landscape i could see the budding trees and listen to the songs of the early birds and maybe catch the note of the first swallow in the air overhead the farm boy always has the whole of nature at his elbow and he is usually aware of it when armed with my long-handled knocker i used to be sent forth in the april meadows to beat up and scatter the fall droppings of the cows the juno's cushions as irving named them i was in much more congenial employment had i known the game of golf in those days i should probably have looked upon this as a fair substitute to stand the big cushions up on edge and with a real golfer's swing hit them with my mallet and see the pieces fly was more like play than work oh then it was april and i felt the rising tide of spring in my blood and a bit of free activity like this under the blue sky suited my humor a boy likes almost any work that affords him an escape from routine and humdrum and has an element of play in it turning the grindstone or the fanning mill or carrying together sheaves or picking up potatoes or carrying in wood were duties that were a drag upon my spirits the spring ploughing and the sowing of the grain and harrowing fell mainly to father and my older brothers the spring work was considered done when the oats were sown and the corn and potatoes planted the first in early may the latter in late may the buckwheat was not sown until late june one farmer would ask another how many oats are you going to sow or have you sown not how many acres oh fifteen or twenty bushels the working of the roads came in june after the crops were in all hands summoned by the path master would meet at a given date at the end of the district 
down by the old stone schoolhouse men and boys with oxen horses scrapers hoes crowbars and begin repairing the highway it was not strenuous work but a kind of holiday that we all enjoyed more or less the road got fixed after a fashion here and there a bridge mended a ditch cleaned out the loose stones removed a hole filled up or a short section turnpiked but the days were eight-hour days and they did not sit heavy upon us the state does it much better now with road machinery and a few men once or twice a year father used to send me with a hoe to throw the loose stones out of the road a pleasanter duty during those years was shooting chipmunks around the corn these little rodents were so plentiful in my youth that they used to pull up the sprouting corn around the margin of the field near the stone walls armed with the old flintlock musket sometimes loaded with a handful of hard peas i used to haunt the edges of the cornfield watching for the little striped backed culprits how remorselessly i used to kill them in those days there were a dozen where there is barely one now the woods literally swarmed with them and when beechnuts and acorns were scarce they were compelled to poach upon the farmers crops it was to reduce them and other pests that shooting matches were held two men would choose sides as in the spelling matches seven or eight or more were on a side and the side that brought in the most trophies at the end of the week won and the losing side had to pay for the supper at the village hotel for the whole crowd a chipmunk's tail counted one a red squirrel's three a gray squirrel's still more hawks heads and owls heads counted as high as ten i think crows heads also counted pretty high one man who had little time to hunt engaged me to help him offering me so much per dozen units i remember that i found up in the sap bush a brood of young screech owls just out of the nest and i killed them all that man is still owing me for those owls what a lot of motley heads and tails were brought in at the end of the week i never saw them but i wish i had repeated shooting matches of this kind in different parts of the state so reduced the small wild life especially the chipmunks that it has not yet recovered and probably never will in those days the farmer's hand was against nearly every wild thing we used to shoot and trap crows and hen-hawks and small hawks as though they were our mortal enemies farmers were wont to stand up poles in their meadows and set steel traps on top of them to catch the hen-hawks that came for the meadow mice which were damaging their meadows the hen-hawk is so named because it rarely or never catches a hen or a chicken he is a mouser we used to bait the hungry crows in spring with deacon legs and shoot them without mercy and all because they now and then pulled a little corn forgetting or not knowing of the grubs and worms they pulled and the grasshoppers they ate but all this is changed and now our sable friends and the high-soaring hawks are seldom molested 
the fool with a rifle is very apt to shoot an eagle if the chance comes to him but he has to be very sly about it the buttercups and the daisies would be blooming when we were working the road and the timothy grass about ready to do so pointing to the near approach of the great event of the season the one major task towards which so many other things pointed haying the gathering of our hundred or more tons of meadow hay this was always a hard-fought campaign our weapons were gotten ready in due time new scythes and new snaths new rakes and new forks the hay riggings repaired or built anew etc shortly after the fourth of july the first assault upon the legions of timothy would be made in the lodged grass below the barn our scythes would turn up great swaths that nearly covered the ground and that put our strength to a severe test when noon came we would go to the house with shaking knees the first day of haying meant nearly a whole day with the scythe and was the most trying of all after that a half day mowing when the weather was good meant work in curing and hauling each afternoon from the first day in early july till the end of august we lived for the hayfield no respite except on rainy days and sundays and no change except from one meadow to another no eight hour days then rather twelve or fourteen including the milking no horse rakes no mowing machines or hay tedders or loading or pitching devices then the scythe the hand rake the pitchfork in the calloused hands of men and boys did the work occasionally the women even taking a turn with the rake or in mowing away i remember the first wire-toothed horse rake with its two handles which when the day was hot and the grass heavy nearly killed both man and horse the holder would throw his weight upon it to make it grip and hold the hay and then in a spasm of energy lift it up and make it drop the hay from this rude instrument through various types of wooden and revolving rakes the modern wheeled rake where the raker rides at his ease has been evolved at this season the cows were brought to the yard by or before five breakfast was at six lunch in the field at ten dinner at twelve and supper at five with milking and hay drawing and heaping up till sundown those mid-forenoon lunches of mothers good rye bread and butter with crullers or gingerbread and in august a fresh green cucumber and a sweating jug of water fresh from the spring sweating not as we did because it was hot but because it was cold partaken under an ash or a maple tree how sweet and fragrant the memory of it all is to me till i reached my teens it was my task to spread hay and to rake after later i took my turn with the mowers and pitchers i never loaded hence i never pitched over the big beam how father watched the weather the rain that makes the grass ruins the hay if the morning did not promise a good hay day our scythes would be ground but hung back in their places when a thunderstorm was gathering in the west and much hay was ready for hauling how it quickened our steps and our strokes 
it was the sound of the guns of the approaching foe in one hour we would do or try to do the work of two how the wagon would rattle over the road how the men would mop their faces and how i while hurrying would secretly exult that now i would have an hour to finish my crossbow or to work on my pond in the pasture lot those late summer afternoons after the shower what man who has spent his youth on the farm does not recall them the high-piled thunderheads of the retreating storm above the eastern mountains the moist fresh smell of the hay and the fields the red puddles in the road the robins singing from the treetops the washed and cooler air and the welcomed feeling of relaxation which they brought it was a good time now to weed the garden to grind the scythes and to do other odd jobs when the haying was finished usually late in august in my time there was usually a let-up for a few days editor's note to be continued end of john burroughs memories of his boyhood part one by john burroughs from harper's magazine january nineteen twenty two read for librivox by sue anderson